discussion with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. Welcome to the Riddick Show. My name is Dave Kinley, and I'm thrilled to have Young Wu as my guest in the CanArt studio today. Young is the Chief Executive Officer of Mars Discovery District, the world's most highly regarded innovation hub, and Canada's premier science and technology innovation ecosystem. They have seeded over 1,300 companies. As a serial entrepreneur and investor, Young has built breakthrough scale stage companies and is a co-founder of two not-for-profit organizations, the Coalition of Innovation Leaders Against Racism and Different is Cool. Young has been recognized as one of Canada's top 40 under 40 and for leading one of Canada's 50 best managed private companies, and in my opinion, should be Order of Canada one day. Young, welcome to The Riddick Show. Maybe you can start by telling us about where it all started. Where were you born and where did this great train begin? Okay. I, I came to Canada as an immigrant with my family. Um, my mother was, in, was an incredibly beautiful, uh, accomplished um, scientist. Uh, when she was going through school at the uh, National Taiwan University, she was nicknamed Madame Curie because of her beautiful uh-huh. mind. Um, and she was one of the first uh, women to graduate from, you know, NTU at the time, which is kind of like ranked with MIT at the time in Taiwan. And can you imagine the, the, the historical kind of context you you should put that in? It is. Taiwan is a very different place today than it was back in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, which is when my mom went to school. Uh, my father was, uh, was an idealist, uh, a top intellectual, uh, one of the best engineers that was ever produced out of Taiwan. What and kind of engineer was he? He was a chemical engineer. Okay. Um, but he was also, you know, he didn't see anything that was, um, he, he had this passion to make sure about justice and fairness. And so you put all those characteristics together, they don't really work well uh, in a military autocracy which was really Chiang Kai-shek's version of Taiwan at the time. Right. Um, so that we had to escape. My father came out here first. He went to University of Toronto. My mother, my sister and I, Faye and I, we sheltered with my grandparents, um, both sides of the family. And it was about, um, it took us almost three years before I saw my father again. Wow. Yeah. But when we came and here- And how old were you at the time? I was three so I came here when I was about ages. six. Yeah. But I remember everything, David, everything about Taiwan. Absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah. In some ways, there's a thread here to be pulled because I was raised by women. Yeah. My grandmother, my mother, my aunties. Uh, my companion was my sister, Faye, who ended up being my business partner later in life. So right. there's an interesting thread there to be pulled, which you just twigged for me, which is why I find that um, women are such a powerful force that have been ignored uh, for way too long. Uh, right. Underrepresented people that did not come from privilege are a completely untapped source of amazing strength for Canada. And to this day, I'm passionate about the topic, but maybe you just yeah. help me discover why. No, I'm 100% in agreement with that. Um, my mom, as you know, is uh, was one of the founders of the 30% Club. Right. Um, very passionate. 
uh, about that and uh, as we all are in the family. Um, so maybe we can tweak into that a little bit. Um, tell me a little bit about your mom's story. So did she continue to work when she came to Canada or? Yeah. Uh, well, first I'd just like to say that, uh, we lost both my mom and my dad two years ago. I know that. Yeah. That was a, a really, really tough time for the family. Um, uh, but you know, one, one thing they wanted to do, and I remember talking to them about it later on in life, my mom passed from Alzheimer's, my father within, I think 11 weeks of her. And as wow. I shared with you at the time, I think it was from a broken heart actually. Yeah, that's, it happens quite a bit. Yeah. But, um, two of the most amazing people and a pretty tough family to grow up in quite honestly, because, you know, Madame Curie and, uh, top. <laughs> the bar know, is high. Yeah. Impossible actually. Yeah. So right off the bat, uh, just to survive in that family, um, forget about the environment we landed in. We came to Montreal, uh, didn't speak a word of English, didn't speak a word of French. Um, I don't know who was more shocked, us or our neighbors who had never seen a visible minority in their <laughs> lives, but we got through. Um, but yeah, early in life, it was very, very clear that to survive in the family and to survive in the community, you had to basically be uh, twice as strong, three times smarter, four times faster, just to get to 50% of the way. Right. Um there's well, that, and that's, that's a good lesson. Yeah. You know, we, we'll yeah. talk about it later, but we're talking about that's sort of what the expectations are of CEOs now. Mm, interesting. World's moving faster, five times as much information every day. Yeah. You know, how stakeholders more complex. Yeah. How you've got to be very, very intellectually capable. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Which you obviously are and, and have genes for. Well, you know, I wish I'd inherited some piece of what my mom and my dad had naturally, but uh, yeah. such as it is, I think we've, we've been able to do okay with it. Yeah. And so what, did you play sports in high school mm. young or did you, were you involved in model parliament or any, any of those things? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I, um, I did play sports in high school. Uh, I, I, you know, picked up sports and played in the band and um, did activities because I was trying to fit in. Right. Because basically as the only visible minority in right. the school at the time, you know, my first instinct was, you know, like keep your head down and try and fit in, do what every other person in the school was doing. And um, so, yes, I, I played football. Uh, yeah. I think the coach said to me, young, yeah, you don't know anything about football. Uh, you don't know, you know, which ways, you know, the touchdown zone and which ways the defensive zone. And like, you don't have a clue, but you can hit really well. Right. So he put me into a, a middle linebacker kind of position um, where, you know, at 12 years old, I think I was the same height and the same weight practically. Yeah. It was good for me until I turned about 16 and everybody else had basically shot up to, you know, six foot something behemoths on the field. But, but you um, can probably figure out the play. They have long quickly. memories. They have very long memories. Yeah. If that coach knew <laughs> that he could have asked you to write an algorithm <laughs> to demonstrate where the plays were going next, they probably would have been farther ahead. Yeah. Well, you never can tell, but, <laughs> but that's, but that's, there's an interesting thread like, from that story though. Uh, again, you're asking me questions that make me think a little bit. Um, there was a time that came when I decided I would never fit in. Um, that the goal of trying to be like everybody else was an impossible goal. 
and was not serving me well anyway. And um, that was when I decided actually to become an entrepreneur. Right. I found myself, uh, you know, at the time, 1960s, early 70s, Canada also was not what it was, what it is today back no. then. And so, you know, people that looked like me were often caricaturized or stereotyped, you know, oh, how come, where's your, where's your cue? Where's your pigtail? Um, how come you're not acting like uh, Hop Singh from Bonanza? You know, right. that kind of a thing. Yeah. And um, one day I found myself laughing at jokes that were made about Asian people because I was one of the guys and I was on the football team and right. I played in the band, the jazz band. And I went home and I, and I thought to myself, when I looked, when I just replayed the events of the day, I was very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And that was the first, only three times in my life have I ever disrespected, allowed disrespect to happen. And that time I disrespected myself. It was my first, last, and only time ever. And I said, that's mm -hmm. the last time I will ever, ever um, try to fit in. But that's such a powerful thought to have at that age. I mean, most of us at that age were, I remember trying to fit in. I was five foot one, a hundred pounds at that age. And, and you play football ended up and playing and... football, basketball and, wow. and did that. But I had to work 20 times harder yeah. than everybody else, you know, to be seen. Yeah. Um, but I, I could never have tackled something that empowering because, uh, I just felt like it was a day-to-day -day scramble to just stay whole in the midst of all that challenge. Um, so I find it just fascinating that you would be able to. Seems to me just you would come have to grips it with too. such a huge moment at such an early age. But good for you. You wanted to to take a more ownership of everything in your life and and empower yourself to go forward. So how does that then? did you start thinking about this is what I want to do in university? And so you were probably already doing well in school, I would imagine. So you, or did you have to kick up your grades at that point? You know, Dave, uh, university wasn't my, uh, wasn't my launch point. Is that right? Yeah. Because university, you went to a great one and you did very well. Well, I did okay. I, uh, University was my get out of jail card because for the first time <laughs> I was in a place where people did not try to uh, characterize me for what I looked like. Right. For the stereotypes that they understood, you know, Asian people to represent. Um, yeah. I was taking for myself. Um, so my only goal in university was to come out of university with maybe... 80% of the same number of brain cells I started with, right? So, I mean, I remember thinking that to myself, Tragic. this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I just discovered coming out of university that there were very clear systems that were rigged against people like myself and that I had to make my own pathway. And so this is that realization that I had that, you know, right from high school, right through to my experience in the job market and, you know, like I could fight like hell and only get 50% of the way. And it just continued to reinforce for me that life presents these little opportunities. Right. And, and, and you found those here, which is in, in Canada. Yeah, um, I did. You know, I, I had the opposite 
experience. I I was in at a came to a point in my career. I think that's when I met you. Mm-hmm. Was it top forty under forty? Right. And I was working at another firm, right. working on that program, and that's where I met you. And uh, I think that's when I met Blake Hutchison too at the same time. <laughs> really. So, um, but I felt like it was a very rigid system here and that I had to pay my dues. I would not get to do the level of work that I thought I was capable of um, here. So I went to the United States and, and mm. I did find that opportunity because it was merit-based. Yeah. And if I did great work, they would just keep referring me to everyone. Um, you You found it sort of completely opposite. And I love that. And I think that's what we want to concentrate on is to make sure that we are um, igniting, you know, these young people to to take on leadership roles like you do. You know what I found out is that um, it's the differences in people Mm -hmm. that are so powerful and that, you know, with a goal to fit in or to belong, like I really believe in diversity of lived experience. But the worst thing you can do to somebody with a different lived experience or a different gender or a different color or comes from a different, you know, walk of life, privilege versus not privilege, is to try and jam a square peg into a round hole. That's yeah. the worst thing you can do. Agreed. What happens when you embrace the differences that you see? That's when you get like multiplier effect. That's right. when you unlock talent that can become resilient, that can become agile, that can truly become transformational. Yeah. Innovation. That's at the heart of the whole thing. If you're trying to jam square pegs into round holes, you will just get a roundish looking square peg. Yeah. Well, you just used a word that that I'm fascinated by. And in fact, I've I've been researching quite a bit lately, and that's the word resilient. Um, having sat on hundreds of panels with discussing leadership and and not hearing the same definition twice in 35 years mm-hmm. um uh i'm i really truly believe that resiliency is a big part of it and uh, every really great leader i've met has a lot of that and you just talk you just brought it up in your first sentence about about becoming a leader um you're obviously very resilient um so you come out of school mm-hmm. and now you say you, you've sort of got a little bit of an idea about what you want to do. You want to be an entrepreneur. Tell me a little bit about more of that. Why entrepreneur? Just control of your own destiny? Um, it was uh, that my path going through existing institutions and companies and organizations was always going to get stopped at some level through a glass ceiling that I had nothing to do with designing. Oh, young, you're too young. Oh, young, you're not really ever meant to be a leader. You're supposed to be a software engineer, right? I mean, that's what Asian people do and they're good at it, right? (laughs) Uh, And uh, young, you know, you, you haven't been here long enough. Young, you've been here too long. I mean, people were trying to put their definitions, their boxes of what they thought I should or shouldn't do. I'm not built that way. You know, I'm built to say, um, challenge opens up opportunities and I'm willing to step into it 
and create new opportunities. So I, I discovered that entrepreneur, the, the pathway of an entrepreneur was my best pathway, probably about seven years into my workforce experience. And um, I uh, remember taking out, you know, my three credit cards at the time, uh, Amex, MasterCard and Visa. And I stood there looking at this thing saying, you know what? In about two more years, maybe 18 months, no more than that, I will never make the leap into becoming an entrepreneur where I get to set my own direction, pass, fail, or shoot the lights out. It's all on me. Right. But in 18 months, that risk would be too high because I would have lost my edge. And the edge that I had, Dave, as an immigrant uh, and somebody that didn't come from wealth or privilege was that I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. Right. And I started getting to the point in my career where I was just making a little too much money, getting a little too comfortable. And like I said, there comes a point when comfort becomes uncomfortable for me. Right. Uh, because I think my, my conclusion later on is that when you start taking off your choices, then you become a market taker. Right. Whereas you maximize your choices, maximize the options that you have, you're a market maker. And I was losing that ability to be a market maker in my own career, my own life, make my own mistakes, drive my own successes. And so I basically blew up my Amex, blew up my MasterCard, <laughs> blew up my Visa, started my first company, Yeah, uh, put myself into a position of tremendous discomfort. Uh, because as I hired people, one person became two, became four, became eight, became 16, one client, because you know, that pathway, you have no safety nets. In fact, you basically have creditors who are charging the same interest rates at that time, like the oh, loan God. sharks down the street. Yeah. So no safety nets. It puts a certain level of urgency to actually solve problems. And you value everything that comes. You value every relationship. You value every client. You value every talented employee you can find, you, you value every partner and you don't waste it. Wow. And so for the listeners, what is the name of this first venture? That first venture, um, we call it Case Tech, Case Tech Software Factory. Right. That's when um, I met you. I that's when you that. met me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, the interesting thing about that venture is that uh, on one bookend, there's my three credit cards. Yeah. On the other bookend, it was basically part of a multi. It was part of a billion-dollar liquidity event, Oracle. Right. That's the story. I I can tell you my two. Uh, I'll tell you my. Uh, there's a couple of memories I have of you yeah. at that time, but I'll tell you the one that stood out the most and has remained with me to this day, and I think it defines your character. Um, and I never ever questioned your integrity ever again after this. It, it, I remember there was an investor, I won't mention her name, um, <laughs> who was going to give you all the money you needed. Uh, I think you were looking for around 30 million at that time, were you not? 20 to 30 uh, at the I time? Did, I did take the the last round was the largest in Canada. It was about 35 million, but that wasn't the one you're thinking about, I don't think. Yeah, there, it, this was maybe an earlier one. Yeah. But part of the condition was your sister was the CFO at the time. <laughs> who you implicitly um, trusted, and for good reason. She's actually one of the most talented women leaders in our country. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, your sister, Faye. And uh, 
they wanted you to get a new CFO in order to do the funding, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. And you turned down the funding instead of dismissing your sister. Right. And, and I thought that was incredible at the time. Money was hard to get. It would have been very tempting to rationalize it somehow for her to bow out gracefully for any other thing, but you stuck with it and you got your funding on, mm. ended up in better terms with, with a better investor group, in my opinion. And, uh, and if I remember right, it's from the U S too, yep. which is also a big plus, um, for the growth of the firm. Um, talk me through how that felt and why you wouldn't take the easy way out. You know, Faye and I have a very interesting relationship. Uh, she's my sister. We can't fire each other because we're brother and sister. <laughs> um, well, we, we, we could fire each other as business partners, but we can't fire each other as brother and sister. But there's ultimately... Um, she wasn't uh, my uh, untalented... Uh, you know, sibling that didn't know anything about what she was doing. She's one of the finest financial um, officers and operating officers. One of the women in my life that has absolutely saved my butt. No, she's triple A plus rating after in, time. In absolutely. I would have hired her 10 times over if she wasn't my sister. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was my sister meant that I had zero doubts about her loyalty and I had zero doubts about her having my back. Remember, entrepreneurs do not have safety nets. Right. So it was an easy decision, David. It was not a difficult decision at all. Yeah. Um, and quite honestly, when I think about Faye and I her- had some difficult board members, I, I remember <laughs> at that time, that, that were not so happy with your decision. And, and Oh, and your you classic, your, your classic, you know, uh, 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 co-founders in an entrepreneurial exercise, often that doesn't stay, that doesn't stick because over time companies change and leaders, if they don't change, wash out as right. they should be. Otherwise companies basically fold. And this is a lesson I certainly learned as an investor. But um, when you have the right sort of combination, it's so rare, you treasure that. Oh, And... Uh, I can just tell you that, you know, I'm the mouthpiece and Faye's definitely the brains of the operation. So uh, it's like, if I took the money, like who's actually going to be able to sort of carry on? <laughs> it would have been suicide. Well, then that takes me to the, my second memory because yeah. you talk about resiliency. This is the first, uh, that, that, that was number 1A example of resilience. I'm not sure if anybody remembers the timing, you and I would, but but your clients were all insurance companies, insurance companies for the and most banks. parties, yeah. and, for the most part. And you got your funding just before nine eleven, if I remember right. Yep. Nine eleven happens. Yep. The insurance companies stop every single transaction. Mm -hmm. They're not purchasing anything. You go from what was it thirty forty million to almost zero in a week. Yeah, we were winning about... But with $30 uh, million dollars in the bank. We were winning about 60% of all the deals in wow. North America at the time. And so these were big enterprise software deals. 
clearly we were basically about to, you know, start to take out the legacy and replace all that with our new modern sort of software solution. Right. And um, we went from that to winning 60% of no deals in right. the next 24 months because nobody bought anything. This was after the tech bust followed by uh, Tyco, Enron, AIG, Anderson, all imploding, followed by Lehman Brothers oh folding, turning into the Great Recession. I have a question for you, actually. Yep. What if that was Lehman Sisters? Don't you think I would have saved myself 10 years of my life? Um, yeah, you probably would have. I think so. You probably would have. It. My little theory about, you know what? The world needs to be better balanced. No, I, I, I also believe in karma and I, yeah. and I think that uh, making the right decisions from yeah. that perspective does pay off. But the timing is so miraculous in some ways, because even as negative as it, as negative as it was for you to go to zero revenue, yeah, you had gotten your 30 million in the bank. Yeah. So now you can cut, you have to figure out who are we now and who we're going to sell to and was, how are uh, we going to sell it? It was still the most painful sort of experience of my entire entrepreneurial career oh, right through till now because- But you had an easy scapegoat. Well- You know, but you, yeah. didn't, you didn't think that way. So we had uh, um, 400 and some people, 400 people in the organization at the time. And we had to cut that organization down to uh, less than 30. Because wow. clearly, clearly during times of challenge, um, you, you have to completely change your business. It, it can't be about growth at all costs. It can't be about investing into more products, more features, more customers. You have to start managing your runway. You have to really be careful about your um, dry powder that you have available. And when you talk about resilience, can I come back to that for a second? Sure. It's a core ideology that Faye and I have looked for in every single company we've ever built, every company we've ever invested into. And um, we, we call it NFQ. It stands for never quit. You have to fill in the F for yourself. Yes. But we look for that for every person we hired. We look for that in every company that we actually install that culture into. And you can control everything that you can control. The table stakes. I mean, great yeah. product, great talent, great leadership, fantastic strategy, blah, blah, blah. Those are just table stakes. What you don't control is timing. Right. And if you don't have the ability to stay in the game long enough, then again, you become a market taker, not a market maker. And I'm going to say this, that success and failure are simply two different points on exactly the same continuum. Mm -hmm. Your ability to stay in the game, to never fucking quit, is the thing that allows you to choose which point on that continuum you want to make your storyline. It's why I say those two endpoints, those two bookends of credit cards and Oracle, right. they're a fun narrative to talk about. That wasn't the story. Right. The story was what happened in between those two things. Because when we stuck it out long enough, we still had the same product that was winning 60% of the deals when right. there were deals. We had a team that we traded very, very well. These are people that I personally hired, every single one of them. They met each other. They bought homes. They had kids. They got married. 
I mean, that was their company. It was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Camelot for the longest time. They came back. So when the market came back, they came back. We rebuilt that company with a clean balance sheet. Uh, we rebuilt that company with a new customer based in Japan, more money in the West Coast, engineers from, added from India. And essentially, that's how we got to the second bookend. So you talk about NFQ. Yeah. Um, talk about, tell me a little bit about what you look for then when you're hiring. Because I look for the exact same thing. Yeah. I think that is the defining intangible in hiring people. And, and you can, behavioral interview, you can go and dig into the past and and learn as much as you can about them. And, uh, but there are any, in, in particular, anything that you look for um, that helps you identify that in them? Um, well, the first thing is I don't think anybody learns a lot from overnight success. We all want it, don't get me wrong. It feels great. And everybody is your fan and your friend when things are going fantastic. But it's the people that, you know, people whose stories take them through challenge. Mm -hmm. And you ask them what happens when they have to face challenge, when there's no safety nets. And when all those friends and all those you know, cheerleaders have disappeared. And right. they tell you about who had my back, uh, right. who really showed up when things needed to happen, um, right. who didn't turn tail because no longer convenient to be hanging out with someone that was facing challenge. And they're always consistent. They're always consistent. Yeah. When they find a way through that, and then they say, look, I mean, I, I, I find that, that people that have fought through challenge really appreciate, understand, and are grateful for the things that others do right. that have made deposits along the way that allowed them to make a couple of withdrawals in the process. So that's another one of my philosophies in life. When you go through life, always try and make right. more deposits, not withdrawals. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. You know, I look back on... Uh, when I left uh, the big firm, yeah, um, you don't have the brand, yeah, um, you don't get invited to any dances. You have to get invited to the dance by yourself, and not only do you have to be invited to the dance, but all the people that are going to the dance are telling everybody else that you're the ugliest person there. <laughs> so I, I have a, a certain empathy for that. Um, trying to start my own business, uh, coming out of a big business. And, and I look for the same things that you do. I find it very difficult to do it for myself. Mm. Um, much easier to get help, um, some objective interference on that. But so you, you did end up selling then Case Tech. Mm -hmm. And who'd you sell? You sold it to Oracle? Yeah, it was part of, um, uh, it was part of a, uh, a billion dollar acquisition by Oracle. We had done a merger by then with another company. And okay. uh, so that combined I think entity. I remember the name of that company. Yeah. So that combined entity basically got sold for about 990 something million dollars. So now you've got some good experience. Yeah. You have got some, some ability to go and make your world happen now. Where do you go from there? 
Well, um, uh, I've uh, I've personally built and founded, uh, I think, seven different companies. Yeah, achieved five different liquidity events. Uh, uh, Case Tech was a very good one. So we had three great liquidity events, um, one returned cash, and one fell on its face and completely imploded. Uh, so believe it or not, that's actually a pretty good track record, um, according it's to benchmarks. an incredible track record, right? Yeah. It, uh, you know, what do you think about it? You're now in a position, um, you know, the listeners will, I'll skip ahead a little here, because uh, I remember uh, talking to you a number of years ago about what you wanted to do at the next stage of your life. Mm. And then you call me up out of the blue one day and say, you're going to be the new CEO at Mars. Right. Um, you know, the the globally renowned technology incubator and uh, with a variety of reputations, de- depending on who you talk to, powerful board, great meaning good mission and vision and sense of what they wanted to achieve. Why in God's name would you at that time decide to jump in and take that on? Um, I was retired by then. Um, five years and, uh, what is it today? The 18th of November. So five years and 18 days ago, um, I was, um, I had just done my actuarial tables uh, for my productive life that was left. And um, I remember talking to my mom and dad when they were still here. And they always wanted our family to find a way to give back to a country that we owed literally our lives to, not just our livelihoods, our lives. Right. So to me, Mars was the opportunity to do that. Um, and uh, I figured if I got 20 good productive years left, I wanted to allocate some portion of that to... Uh, uh, not just a give back project, but one that really mattered for Canada. Yeah. Because this is this is this is the country that took us in when we didn't have a place to go. Yeah. Um, and it needs. This it is a big needed someone like you right at that time. I don't know if it opinion. needed someone like me, Dave, but I, I I've always felt like um, entrepreneurs are really at the heart of how we build transform transformate transformative, sorry, English is not my first language. It's That's telling okay. right now, uh, transformative opportunities. Right. Um, Mars, uh, I mean, I, I, I get to go in every day and I see people literally inventing the future around me in life sciences and, and climate tech and, uh, oh. right. I, I, you know what I love the building. I, people always ask me why, you know, I remember asking you if I could get a card to yeah. hang out in the building because, I was working in Silicon Valley during the tech boom. Yeah. And I used to go and sit on the coffee shops on Main Street, Palo Alto. Hmm. And the buzz, the electricity yeah. in the air, the, you know, the de- you could hear the deals being done and you could see the people that were doing them. And you just felt like you're in the midst of something that was going to change the world. It was so exciting. And my first trip into Mars, sitting there having a coffee in the hallway I, I felt that same kind of hmm. buzz and I said, this is incredible. Yeah. This is Toronto yeah. and this is all happening around us right here. And uh, I've got to learn more about this. Hmm. And uh, so tell me a little bit more about what it was like when you got there. 
And what did, what did you feel needed to be done or changed? Fire started um, in probably about uh, in the 2000 timeframe with our founder, Dr. John Evans. Yeah. And um, Dr. Evans, I think, was one of the top three all-time Canadians. You know, he uh, <clears throat> was the president of U of T. Uh, he was the founding dean of the School of Medicine at McMaster University as well. Mm-hmm. I think he was the chair of Alelix. Uh, he was the chair of the Rockefeller Center. I mean, he... Uh, I don't know how he collected so much of the genetic matter of Canada into one family, but like you should see his sons too, right? So um, that was around the 2000 timeframe. Mars was set to be, uh, where Mars is was the old Toronto General Hospital. It was set to be torn down, ripped down, and turned into condominiums. And Dr. Evans' vision for this whole thing was like, no way. This is connected to a pipeline of incredible intellectual property and research assets coming out of U of T, the University Health Network. Uh, we had the legislature across the street. We're connected by the tunnel system for the talent to get to that place. Um, so the vision was, let's create a commercialization center. Let's actually find a way to be a catalyst for Canada to move from a resource-based economy to be diversified into also a knowledge-based economy. That was the vision. And... Um, Nothing ever goes in straight lines, Dave. No. Right? Nothing. No. Nothing. No. And so over, over two decades, right. Mars had its challenges. Uh, and those challenges came, again, through cycles. The same things that I talked about in terms of my own companies, I saw Mars go through the same things because during the Great Recession of 2008, which led into a real estate crisis, Mars's building was half built. There was not a day where we didn't go to the Toronto Star or the Toronto Sun and see some negative headline about where Mars was at. Right. Um, and again, it's and back that to that. It didn't have anything to do with operating the business or anything. You have to be resilient through that stuff. And right. you have to believe in what the vision of this place is. Um, so I want to say there were some external challenges to fight through. Um, and it's worth fighting those battles. Oh. It's worth fighting those battles. You know, I was, um, I, I'm lucky that I have been able to go to some different places in the U.S. and work. And I have good friends and clients at Stanford Research Institute and mm-hmm. Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Hopkins. They, they all have this incredible idea of what Mars is. Mm. They, they tell me they are the shining example to the world about how you make tech innovation happen. Right. And I said, well, I think I need to either buy a two-page, you know, opinion in each of the big newspapers and have an interview all of you to get that message across because Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we don't even know about ourselves. (laughs) You know, I couldn't find people with the same opinions here in Toronto. Yeah. You know, in, in their back door, they didn't understand what they had. Yep. So how did you overcome that? How do you get the community to understand what smart people, everybody, everywhere else understand is working? Um, I, I would say that um, we're, we're not an accelerator and we're not an incubator. We're not just there to work with founders, take them to a certain stage and turn them loose in the world and hope for the best. We're actually, if you like, 
the flywheel that Mars operates is the actual innovation economy flywheel. And um, so the best way to tell the Mars story is to do great work for the stakeholders and clients and customers and partners of Mars and have them tell the Mars story. And that's what I was zeroed in on doing as soon as I got in the door. Perhaps I'd also say this, the innovation ecosystem in 2018, which is when I fully joined, is different from what it was back in 2010. When uh, 2010 or 2005, when the buildings first started coming up, even 2000, when Dr. John Evans was imagining what this was going to be. And I think renewal is at the heart of a place like Mars. You have to have renewal at all times. What do you mean by that? Um, as the ecosystem advances and matures, it needs different things okay. in order to succeed at the next level, next challenges, next opportunities. And without renewal of talent, Right. And without renewal of strategy and without renewal of teams, you wind up getting static. No, it's listen, I I get hired all the time to look for CEOs right. for tech companies in Canada. Yeah. And the the pool of people to choose from is small to none non existent. And it's not because they're not great people here. They just haven't had the chance hmm. to do much of it. Most Canadian companies get sold when they get to 15, 20, 25, 30 million. Yeah. In my humble opinion, they're all taking singles hmm. instead of shooting for the home run. And it became almost commonplace. And, and you know, later on, we saw what Mark Leonard yeah. did with all those sure. 15, 20 million dollar companies with a better and bigger vision for what they could be. Um, how do we get, how do we get investors and CEOs to commit to creating more rims and Nortels and, yeah. you know, staying through that 15, 20, 25 million mark and breaking through the 100 million revenue mark where now it's out of their control. They're too big to fail. Now they can actually attack the world. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's a passion of yours. Yeah. And I think it is the one thing that would change this country's tech economy completely if we could have multiples of those companies coming out on a regular basis. Right. And what's holding us back? So um, uh, this is an entrepreneur's perspective because I spent all my life as an entrepreneur. And, and maybe that's the biggest difference I brought to Mars when I joined, was that I'm looking at this from an experience of an entrepreneur. Mars has 1,400 companies that we serve. In Incredible. 2021... They employ 32,600 people. That's up from 6,000 people five years ago. There's a signal there to be watchful about. Um, they raised, I think, uh, $6.1 billion in 2021. Wow. In the past, uh, since we started counting. How, do, how come nobody knows this? Well, there's a few more numbers if you're interested. Uh, oh, listen, let's hear them all. $30 billion let's, in and, GDP. And loud and clear. Growth at about 20.7% compounded annually, just wow. on OPEX, not including capital and CapEx. That's about 10 times the growth rate of any other sector in, uh, well, that's, the, that's, the, that's a 10x on the GDP growth rate of Canada and the GDP growth rate of Ontario. It's incredible. So when you think about the great sectors that underpin the Canadian economy, like the rhetorical question is this, what do you think about it? 
Is it oil and gas? Is it mining? Lumber? Maybe it's manufacturing. It's actually the innovation economy. Those are all diminishing resources. One isn't. So the knowledge-based economy is actually the one sector, if you think about the startups, plus the advanced industry sector leaders that invest into IP, this is the largest aggregate sector equivalent compared to any of the other individual sectors and is growing at three times the rate. So an entrepreneur's perspective says that the world we're going into post-pandemic is clearly being built on the back of the innovation economy, not the business as usual from two and a half years ago. And it's critical that we run the interventions in this country that allow us to replicate the 90 years it took to build the equivalent in the Silicon Valley. So all that's to say, David, I think the right strategy here as an entrepreneur looking at an ecosystem that should serve to build more entrepreneurs is that we need to have a multi-generational reinvestment of experience, of talent, of capital, of connections, of those that have been successful in one generation need to invest into the next generation and into the next generation after that. Silicon Valley got built around six major transformational technologies and a history of successful entrepreneurs reinvesting into the next right, and into the next and into the next. I think Canada is somewhere around 10, 15 years into a journey. Silicon Valley does much better at transferring that knowledge mm-hmm. through the schools there, through the alumni, yeah. the alumni, in a, you know, spending, you know, there's a thing called a search yeah. um, company. And that's, uh, it really was sort of the, the early, the person who really gets a lot of the acclaim for that mm-hmm. is, uh, the, I think he owns the Boston Celtics now, uh, Irv Grosbeck. Yeah. Okay. And he was teaching entrepreneurial studies at Stanford, but he had built up a big cable empire and sold it. And, uh, they started investing in graduate students mm-hmm. uh, from their B school and they would actually fund them to go and find there you go. a company to buy and run. Yep. So for example, Kevin Tawil. Yeah. Little guy from PEI. Yep. Dad owned a Lebanese corner store mm. and uh, he bought a little company called Roadside Assistance mm. with the help of Irving and some other graduates of the B school. Yep. And they'll do somewhere between 12 to 20 billion this year. Yeah. Amazing. With 750,000, give or take, employees around the world. Um, That's what they do better. Yeah. Is that transference of success. And, uh, you know, I I sat on the Robarts Commercialization Committee. Mm -hmm. So I got a hands-on kind of reality check on how we do and how well we do transferring knowledge from the big brains to the financial sector. And it was frustrating. Yeah. Frustrating. Well, we couldn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and we had some really smart people around the table. Um, what is your thought? What are your thoughts on that? How can we mm-hmm. use Mars as a platform or is it the right platform? Um, are there other platforms we can create? Well, Mars is already the, uh, the largest um, innovation hub in North America. 
Right. Probably one of the top three in the world right now. So it's a proven playbook over two decades. Right. And so I would just say this, if you want moonshot companies, you'd better invest into the launch pads. Otherwise, we're basically just trying to catch lightning in a bottle, which is the reason that we don't get massive tech successes except for once every 15, 20 years. Right. We're improving the rate of success. Why? Because uh, launch pads like Mars represent innovation infrastructure. And especially at a time where there's a coming economic downturn in the next 18, 24 months, right. you need infrastructure that will guarantee a higher rate of success and a lower rate of failure. And for me, velocity. Right. Not inertia. You got to take the transaction costs out. You got to take the inertia out and you got to improve velocity. That first company that you and I talked about took 14 years. Subsequent companies, less than seven years. Right. But if I could have built that first company in seven years, not 14, because I had access to talent that came here, customers that were already here, capital that was actually domiciled here, that would have saved me seven years of my life. Right. That's velocity. And I would have saved myself two major economic cycles in the process. Right. And do you find um, that some of the companies that make it through your support, are they are they remembering the contribution you made um, or are they too focused on sort of where they're going and um, are they giving back to the cycle? Um, you know, my, my vision, I'm pretty selfish from my perspective. I want to, I want to teach, educate and grow more leadership in this country. Mm-hmm. And so we have to give them more opportunity and they're not getting enough opportunity. And the great leaders in many cases are the founders. They've often made so much money. They don't want to do it again, or if mm-hmm. they do it again, they're going to do it themselves and run it themselves. Yep. So who is getting, where's that transfer of leadership going? You know, have you created a, another CEO out of your group? Um, I, I, I wouldn't personally take credit for any of that. I think there's an inherent thing about being Canadian. Like we all, we sure. all know what this place is. I come from outside of Canada. So, I actually understand what life looks like outside of Canada. I was never fortunate enough to be born here, but I choose to be here, right? I think entrepreneurs, there's a reason why so many great entrepreneurs are actually also immigrants. As you know, Dave, Toronto is over 50%, uh, you know, uh, made up of immigrants. Right. They come here with nothing to lose, everything to gain. Some of the greatest companies in the world, Apple, Oracle, uh, uh, Amazon, IBM, they're all sort of founded by immigrants or sons and daughters of immigrants, right? I mean, it's crazy. So I think there's a linkage between those two things. I think we have to create the circumstances for that recurring reinvestment, multi-generational reinvestment uh, of great successes into the next round. And yeah. I think that Canadians want to do and, it, And I don't actually. think we brag about it enough. I mean, I yeah. don't think we celebrate our successes. I mean, we... Yeah, fair I, enough. I was, I was saying to you earlier, you know, you we give out awards to people who make movies. And not only do we have a whole night that we sit aside with our popcorn to celebrate 
their best movies that year. But mm -hmm. we have a five-hour lead-in show, <laughs> you know, to talk about these individuals. And we do it with sports. Yeah. And, uh, but we don't with our business leaders. You know, there are awards out there, but they're few and far between, and they're not celebrated enough. Um, so, I mean, it is one of the reasons why this podcast is, I'm so passionate about it, is that I do want to start to let people know about the special people in this world that are, that are leading us into the next century. And um, what, are, what are some of the things that you see going on in the world right now, Young, that piss you off? You know, that, that you wish you could make a difference in beyond running Mars, um, if you had a chance. I don't, I think. Uh, I know there's a lot of them, but. Actually, there's not. David, it's it's interesting question again, because, you know, the things that would normally piss me off are things like um, uh, having glass ceilings or being put into a stereotype. <laughs> I treat that as an opportunity. So if you ask me the question, what do I think are the big opportunities that are yet unmet um, that we can basically totally dominate or, 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 or gain competitive advantage in globally? Um, Canada has always, always uh, got enormous assets by way of deep science, deep tech, discovery. Insulin was discovered here, first administered here. We gave it to Eli Lilly. You know, right. the entire state of Indiana owes us at this point. Uh, stem cells were discovered at University of Toronto and commercialized at Mars. Right. Um, so I'd say, okay, if we think about big, big categories like... Uh, uh, Climate, that's a multi, it, this year it's going to be a $3.3 trillion economy in 2022. And yes. given sort of where the world is going by way of sustainability on the climate side, that's one of the most pervasive economic categories, multi-trillion dollar categories, you know, counter-cyclical. If, if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think yeah. Mars has sort of got the market cornered. I don't on know those, about corner. On those brilliant minds, don't they? I don't you know have about hundreds of people we, working we on do. climate, don't you? And, we do. We yeah. do. So the goal would be this. How can we drive enormous impact, such as, let's go save the planet, and, and not or, and also create an outsized participation in a multi-trillion dollar climate economy globally? Because we can. We can, they come from our innovators, our scientists, our researchers, our entrepreneurs. And, and so that's our opportunity. What would piss me off is if we did not grab that, if right. we did not make the difference. And for us to unlock that, we have to actually match the boldness of what we say with the risk appetite to take some of this stuff on. Because right. what we say isn't what we do, David. I understand as, completely. As, 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 a, as a community, I'm talking about the total community, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, we're not the biggest tolerators of risk in this country, for sure. We're, we we're don't getting to play better. hockey like that. We're getting better. Right? We are getting better. We are getting way better. But don't you think at some level, at some stage, we were okay just to make the playoffs? Right. As opposed to... Right. Like as you, I say, hit a single. Yeah. You know, make the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I think we... I think we have to have more leaders that are focused on winning the Stanley Cup or 
um, hitting home runs and yeah. the appetite to stick with them. Yeah. If you find these rare leaders and we develop them, um, what do you, you know, people say that leaders, some people say leaders are born. Some people think it's a product of environment. You can be trained. Um, I'd like to think we can teach it. Otherwise we're in trouble. We need to teach it yeah. and we need to pass on that knowledge. What do you, what are some of your ideas around how we can pass that knowledge on that we're not using right now to ensure that we don't have these glass ceilings? Um, it is to um, strengthen. I mean, I got, I got three things. One is that talent has always been the fuel for the innovation economy. And um, it continues to be. So how do you attract the, the most inspiring talent globally to come here? Mm -hmm. Once you have one, I'll give you one example, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, now one of the godfathers of artificial intelligence. We imported him from the UK. I mean, we, it's, it's a bit of a grandiose statement, but he yeah. came here from the UK. Right. We're never going to allow him to leave. <laughs> Why? Because of course, people want to work with him. Because once you know who's the best, you want to learn from the best and you want to work with the best and you want to be associated with the best. So from one person like that, you get his colleagues, you get his students, you get entrepreneurs that want to surround him. Suddenly you have a vector institute. Right. Suddenly you're starting to power digital drug discovery. Uh, suddenly you're starting to, you know what I mean? It's, it's like a, yeah, it's a no, knock on I, I, So I that's agree. one thing. Um, and then the second thing is this whole notion of um, if you actually want moonshot companies, you have to be able to invest into the infrastructure that supports them, the launch pads. Um, and, and ignoring the fact that uh, places like Mars actually have a activation role, not just a convening role, is, is you ignore that to your peril because then you drop back into... Okay, 0.6% of companies ever become moonshot companies. Uh, well, we should be looking at how do we drive 4.8% of these companies into moonshot companies because most companies die. Right. Because they probably should. But there's a few that need to be successful and we can be. Um, it, so how do you, then you feel, that I have this argument. I, before the pandemic, mm -hmm. if I was doing a, a search for a CEO, yeah, I... Uh, there was no way anybody would tolerate a, a commuting relationship. There was just no way they could see through a company being built, a culture being built by someone who's there three, four days a week. So um, now we go in where the remote and uh, working relationship with the company is changed. Mm -hmm. um, you have some some leaders like Elon Musk and others that are demanding people come back to the office. Um, I would like to see the, that energy within the building of Mars continue to inspire and, and just have people, I, I know anybody that goes in there leaves with a different feeling. Mm. How do you keep that going with less people being around. What's your feeling on that? Can, can you build a new company and a culture with people being in the office two, three days a week? Um, we're at a very interesting point in time. Um, 
and people have lots and lots of choices. Talent has lots and lots of choices as to where they go. Um, the question is this, um, when, when we look at people that are uh, in the tech space, what do they value the most? It's, it's their colleagues, it's their skills, it's their right. opportunities to be mentored, it's their opportunities to grow, it's the connections that happen. And so from my perspective, it's about how do we inspire people to come together? Not how do we mandate people to come together? Right. How do we inspire them? What point. is different about sitting in front of, you know, your your laptop or your desktop at home, headphones on, heads down, screen on, and doing the same thing at the office? Except that at the office, you got to go through congestion, traffic, cost, exposure, on and on and on. That's not an inspiring experience. Right. Especially for you know, an industry sector where people have all kinds of choices. How do we inspire human connection? Because that's what we're missing. Um, sitting there agree. alone in your basement, doing your work heads down. And, that's what makes us human. Right. And there's a really interesting experience at Mars. So although um, the, uh, although the, the companies that are housed in Mars are seeing a slow uptick in terms of, you know, uh, people that are in there five days a week uh, doing heads down work and that kind of stuff. We've seen the events at Mars, like come back like a freight train without brakes right now. Excellent. Yeah. It is. So just like, creating special events every week. Right. Get you inspire opportunities for idea. people to make connections yeah. with each other. And that takes on a bit of a life of its own. It does. Um, because people. then people get connected. They're in their community. They get to learn from each other, mentor each other. And they're know. reminded of why 100%. it's great to be a human. Yeah. To interact yeah. with other humans. Yeah. 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 That's how innovation happens. And, it, but it also, you know, you, there are words like empathy mm -hmm. and team building and those yeah. sorts of things that you can easily lose yeah. being isolated for too long. So true, David. And forget, right? You have to be, um, do you really understand how the person across from you is feeling Yeah. when you're only talking to them once a week by Zoom Yeah. as opposed to having a coffee with them in the coffee room, mm. lunching with them, That's maybe so a meeting drags on for an extra 45 minutes because everybody in the room kind of feels the energy and wants to keep it going. Mm. And a Zoom is a chop-off date because most people on the call have the next one booked right away. Yeah. You know, I, my days are much longer by Zoom yeah. than they were before. Yeah. Because I, I, don't, I don't have any of that downtime between meetings where I would talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, or have to travel. And realize how frustrating the travel is. It's part of hmm. the whole gig. Human beings are social animals. We are. And we need connecting. We need we need connectedness we in order to exercise that muscle. Yeah. And we're finding that is getting it from an interviewing perspective. Hmm. We're seeing it in the candidate base hmm. that they are more drilled. They are more honed in on all of the results hmm. and the direct evidence, I guess you would say. Yeah. There's no more trying to nuance me hmm. with their people skills, Yeah, which is I, something I like to see. 
Yeah. I want to measure their ability to sell a vision, build consensus, and some of the things, the manage diverse stakeholders yeah. that great leaders do that you can't feel through a Zoom. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think that um, uh, my own personal wish is that we slowly return to something not like the past, but maybe a different model. You know, I think we're it's not there. five days a week. Maybe it's three to four days a yeah. week um, with with some of these events like you're suggesting, I think yeah. would be great. I um, think we're going to get there, you know, you know, do you, you've just had, you know, in the last few years built a new team, mm -hmm. you know, how are, how did you find that the interruption during the pandemic, you know, trying to integrate that new team? Um. It's been, it's been hard. Uh, you know, one thing that's not often talked about is how hard it's been on leaders. Right. Um, that's why we're here. Right. <laughs> and, it, and it has been, to be honest, you know, because I mean, uh, you, you have nowhere else to turn when you are a leader and the challenges that happen for your frontline teams isn't, aren't just business challenges. There's family right. uh, challenges, there's health, there's community, there's isolation, there's mental health. There's uh, the social volatility. There are the geopolitics of the day. I mean, the economic fear and the unknown. I mean, there's a lot on people right now. And leaders don't get to sort of sit and wallow in that. Right. And so it's been hard on leaders. It's tapped out resilience. It's probably tapped out also tolerance at the same time. Right. And this is the challenge for leaders. But... Uh, great leaders will find a way to kind of, you know, re-inject that human connection into the team experience. Yeah. And um, every change is actually a point of renewal. And yeah. so you asked me, how about, how about the team that's been built at Mars these days? I'm really quite enjoying it. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, new leaders come up um, that are wonderful surprises, actually. And then from the outside, we're bringing in talent uh, that uh, I think gives fresh perspective and a renewed sense of energy. And, you know, honestly, over two and a half years, um, one of the things I'm most proud of, because it goes to my resilience comments from before, is that um, this team has proven to me uh, that they actually have the cap capability and capacity, not just to win during easy, good times. Right but to survive and thrive in hard times. Yeah. So if, if we can get done what we got done in the past five years, 600% growth, NPS scores off the charts with respect to our clients. Right. Uh, GDP contribution of $23 billion. You know, I mean, if this team could do all that with one arm tied behind their back, what couldn't this team do? with a little wind, a tailwind mm -hmm. at our backs. Uh, you know, a great thing is um, we just had our municipal elections. There's not going to be another federal, provincial, or municipal election for the next three years, let's say. Yeah. Right? That's nice. Really nice. Really nice. Because Mars, of course, needs to work with our policymakers and our regulators in addition to our private sector and our public sector to really drive the innovation economy from a holistic point of view that we've yeah. talked about.
Well, I hope, you know, I, I do hope, um, I know a large part of our audience are other CEOs uh, and leaders within Canada. I hope they're listening to this podcast um, and think about that and the investments they'll make over the, over the next five years. Um, tell me a little bit about um, what you do for fun. I mean, uh, I know you tell me, uh, <laughs> I get emails from you sometimes in the middle of the night and mm. sometimes early in the morning. I don't know if you ever do sleep, but um, <sighs> what do you and your beautiful bride do for fun? Um, I wish I could make something up for you, Dave, that was, you know, kind of fun and entertaining. Um, I, we're... We're at the age and stage where every day is just a gift. Right. Um, I don't want to send, you know, make it all sound all altruistic and such, but um, I, I just enjoy any time I get with my family yeah. on a personal level. And I hate to distract it with other stuff yeah. because I get so little of it right now. Um, and I understand. You know what I mean? It's it's been a tough two and a half and years. Be able and to, you've been through a lot too. You, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier. I know that your both your parents passed. Yeah. You know you have a family member that that yeah. is autistic and yeah. that you take care of, which I have a lot of respect and empathy for because yeah, I have you. a brother-in-law we take care of sometimes that yeah. in the same condition. Um, I. I would like people to really understand this resiliency comment because I'd like to dig into that a little deeper, if you don't mind, because I'm, I struggle. I've been reading everything I can get my hands on. Um, I, I even have a cousin that is a software that's training resiliency. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to get our arms around how to, how to measure and quantify it. Um, uh, do you do anything at Mars right now with regards to your team? Yeah. Uh, with resiliency? Yeah. We, uh, we have this little thing called Mars games. Mars games. Yeah. Um, so this is another one of those human connection opportunities where, um, we, uh, it's 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 like the the Olympics, except in a fun sort of a kooky kind of a way. Yeah, uh, you know, we'll go out and play soccer, uh, uh, soccer, uh, soccer baseball. I think you call it. Yeah, uh, out at Queens Park, we'll we'll run little competitions. We'll we'll um, uh, have talent shows, uh, things like that. So it takes you out of the sort of like the heads down stuff. Yeah, and establishes human connections between people as well. Yeah. Um, but I think re resilience comes from renewal and, yeah. you know, you have to, on an empty tank, you actually have to create opportunities to refill it. However, you know, let your freak flag fly, but you got to be able to, you know, fill up your tank once in a while too. And so yeah. these are the things just to break out of the, the normal sort of business as usual and find ways to and do you, that. And you have attracted a lot of interesting friends and leaders, um, you're a remarkable board member for Omers. It was so, it was really invigorating for me to see uh, a big institution like that, you know, bring somebody with your experience on. Um, and the feedback I've, I've heard is great on that. But you also have a, a really deep relationship with Margaret Atwood. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. like you think of all the people would meet each other in this world. You know, I have a friendship with Margaret as well. Yeah. Um, I remember her calling me to make sure I took my probiotics. Um, uh, I had to ask Margaret's but, permission before I actually accepted the job offer from Mars. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Because she is um, a very unique uh, Canadian and yeah. is very resilient. Yeah. And may probably work till she's 110. I hope so. Um, how do... Uh, how did you come about meeting her? Like, you know, do these things just fall in your lap or? Um, I guess so. Uh, by the nature of who you are. I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I really like people that are not square pegs and round holes. Yeah. I love people that are very, very different. And I love finding out what makes people tech because, yeah. Uh, as opposed to trying to, so Margaret, this is one of the things, uh, uh, my wife, Katrina and I, we, we, uh, at one point when I was still retired, we had a platform called different is cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with our conversation, you can probably figure out why that was important to us. Right. We were raising money and making contributions and that was our philanthropic platform. So we had Margaret Atwood and Danny Lanois, who's one of the yeah. top rock producers in the world, quite honestly, as our patrons. They're different, uh, you know, um, and, I, and, and I wonder to myself at the time, what happens if, what would have happened if we had tried to force Margaret or Danny to be square pegs and round holes? Yeah, we would never have gotten the were. genius that came out of those two. That's right. So Margaret is completely different from everybody I know in a great way. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, I've known her for a long time now. She is not a single thread person. Is she a, is she one of Canada's great jewels and authors? Absolutely. Did is you know she she's a an entrepreneur? champion of Mars? She's a huge champion now. She, she, she That's is, excellent. uh, she's a judge for our women in clean tech, uh, opportunities. Um, she's an entrepreneur herself. Um, yeah. Well, right? that's right. I, Remember working with her to help her find a Completely. CEO for her software company. Right. I don't think anybody would ever consider her a software there you go. entrepreneur, but she was. She was. And is. Yeah. Um, when I was going to join Mars, I was having lunch with uh, Margaret. She says, Young, I'm going to allow you to join Mars as long as you go fix climate change for me. And I'm a <laughs> software guy. I know nothing about climate. So, yeah. of course, I read up on it and it captured me. Yeah. Like, this is the biggest human challenge of multiple generations lifetimes and we got to make it happen so yeah margaret there you go <laughs> well how do you deal that's a good question how do you deal with focus at mars i mean uh, you know i think uh, i've always thought of mars as a healthcare fintech clean tech and maybe some odds and ends that are fast you know are are important companies to be helping um lots of people think that that's too many missions for hmm. one organization. I mean, healthcare in its own right could swallow up a hundred yeah. companies like yours in terms of its appetite. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you, how is Mars today with that? Um, are you still focused on all those different areas or are you, um, I, I understand I'm listening to you in terms hmm. of the environment and, and climate that that's a big push. Yeah. Um, is it bigger than when you took over? 
Um, I would I would um, say so. Um, just about on every single file that we work with. Okay. The reason is we're not trying to pick winners at Mars. We're trying to support the entrepreneurial journey. And for uh, entrepreneurs, our goal is to make sure that those that are startups become scale ups. Scale ups become high growth. High growth become category leaders, regardless of what sectors they operate in. We don't operate these companies. We support these companies. Right. And so entrepreneurs will do what entrepreneurs need to do. And our job is to make sure that we increase the rate of success, decrease the rate of failure, and actually take out as much of the inertia as possible. Yeah. So that's why Mars is occupied in so many areas. Um, and, and so I would just say that, you know what, the thing we do that's very interesting is... I believe the way for us to solve things of huge impact is by partnering with our entrepreneurs. And so when you start thinking about where can Canada get the biggest bang for the buck? Where does Canada need to make the biggest difference? Where can Canada build the greatest entrepreneurial uh, uh, economic sustainability and drive the impacts that basically satisfy the goals that we have as a nation? We partner with our entrepreneurs. We partner with our innovation community. Climate yeah. is certainly a big, huge topic. And I do not believe we can solve for climate without deeply embedding innovation. Uh, a life sciences industry is there for us to actually pursue and build at scale. Right. We do that by partnering with our entrepreneurs and our innovation community. So you pick off the major areas where Canada can win. And I would say... Let's develop uh, some some really strong supports and policy incentives and key interventions to make sure that Canada, by partnering with our innovation community and our entrepreneurs, ends up having a outsized participation in a global multi-trillion dollar uh, markets that these represent, while saving the planet, yeah. while bringing wellness to longevity. Wow. You know, blah, blah, blah. We, we can do this. Well, well, listen, I, I have about a hundred more questions <laughs> that, that I could ask. And you and I have always had to cut our conversations off because we right. could go on forever. Um, I, I hope that our listeners out there have a, a really great understanding and, and feel good for themselves and for their country that we have somebody like you that is committed in giving of yourself for driving this nation in a new direction and, a, and in a good direction, I think. Um, I hope you stay involved with a lot. And I hope I've wept, whetted their appetite for us to do this again someday. Um, thank you very much for taking your time. Been a couple hours almost already. And, I can't and, believe it. Uh, and I, uh, I can't even remember uh, half the things we talked about already because I have other things on my mind. But um, <laughs> listen, all my best to your sister, Faye, and to Katrina yeah. and to Edric. Thank you, David. Um, I wish you guys the best. And uh, thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for, for being able to share and giving of your time. And hopefully what we've done is triggered a few more younger entrepreneurs today to have the courage to and the resilience to step forward. So, well, thank you for taking me down that um, you know trip through memory lane. Uh, probably discovered a few things along the, the telling of the story as well. So, yeah, uh, a few nice surprises along the way. Um, but uh, I, I think 
this is a really important uh, series you're doing, David, um, because it it um, it's it's probably going to reveal some things for where we can actually continue to to enlarge our difference as a country. Um, and it is about leadership at the end of the day. I will just say that, you know what, I mean, these are just my experiences and my lessons learned. Yeah. I take no credit for any anything else. I think there's a lot happening in Canada today, but it's yeah. up to us to make sure that we support that, focus that, and make sure that it makes a difference for all of us. So well my said. only addition, NFQ. There well you go. Well said, well said. And uh, listen, um, that's exactly right. And uh, And I think we have started some new conversations today and we'll continue to so all the best my friend all right thank you David. thanks everyone thanks for listening this has been the rdk show stay resilient find us at rdkshow.com